This is Dane Holstrom, Divorce Authority. We're going to be talking about a lot of different subjects in family law. There are some important items that I'm required to share with you so that you understand the limited purpose of my going over all of this information with you. No matter what the specific topic, it's very important for you to understand that this information is not intended as legal advice for any specific person or any specific type or actual case. My sharing this information with you is not designed to create an attorney-client relationship. Everybody's case is different and nobody's results are the same. Just because we may discuss what happened in some other client's case that may in fact sound similar to yours or some other situation does not suggest that your case or the results would be the same or even similar. The discussion of specific cases are fictionalized and may not be real clients or cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to help you understand the framework of how these issues are decided, provide you a better understanding of the process, and hopefully give you insight as to how you might prepare and conduct yourself and your case to get a better result. There is absolutely no substitute for a consultation or hiring a competent, trained family law attorney. And I encourage you to seek out such an attorney as soon as practical in your case. Divorce Authority is a brand and registered trademark of Holstrom Block & Park, a professional law corporation. I've been practicing family law for 30 years. I've been certified by the state of California as a family law specialist. So I know a thing or two about divorce. I'm Dane Holstrom, and I am the Divorce Authority. Today, we're going to talk about custody. That's child custody, just in case you were wondering, because the state of California now has orders for pet custody, but that's another day. There are several kinds of labels for custody. The biggest, most important labels are legal custody on the one hand and physical custody on the other. A brief description, and this is not intended to be a treatise on this concept, is that legal custody is the right, number one, to be aware and involved of all of the life affecting decisions and activities of your child. Is my child going to have surgery? Is my child going to undergo a certain course of therapy or medical treatment? What school is my child going to go to? Do they need special ed because of a disability they have? Would they be better served by special ed or by being mainstreamed? All of these are legal custody issues. Should my child go to mental health therapy? Again, these are factors that you have a role in making the decision. And when you're not in a divorce, each parent completely acts autonomously, and each parent does what they think is best for the kid. Usually they talk to each other before they do things in an intact and healthy relationship. Sometimes they don't. And I guarantee you, when you get into a separated situation, the vast majority of people are thinking about themselves and their interpretation of what's best for the child and not necessarily soliciting the input of the other parent and sometimes acting in outright derogation of the other parents' right to participate in the decision-making process. So that's legal custody. What is physical custody? Physical custody is simply put, where does the child live when? Also referred to timeshare. What methodology are we going to create to have our child go between each parent's respective homes? Then you hear the label, joint. What is joint? Well, it is not 50-50. So for those that equate joint custody with a true 50-50, 
it does not necessarily mean that. So just be aware that somebody says they have joint custody. It doesn't mean 50-50. That's not a bad thing. It just is a thing. Now, in California, how do we share our children? Well, for legal custody, there's an initial almost guarantee that, that both parents are actively involved in a healthy relationship with their kids, or even if it's not entirely healthy, that they will each have joint legal custody. What that then means is each of them has a right to be consulted before any decision is made, except, of course, in an emergency. If your child breaks their leg, then you get the child emergency medical care, and then you call the other parent. Okay, if you can do it in the car and you're not losing your shit, that's okay too. But always involve the other parent as a matter of respect and because you know it's important to the child. That's how you handle joint legal custody in a healthy relationship. There are times when that doesn't apply. In the case of domestic violence, in a previous episode, we talked about the effect of Family Code Section 3044, which says if you are found to have committed an act of domestic violence, on the parent of a child that you are also a parent of, then there's a presumption under the law that you are unfit to share either physical or legal custody, whether shared or sole. And we'll get to sole custody in a minute. And so domestic violence findings can severely affect not only how much time you spend with your child, but sure, you can absolutely lose your right to be consulted before an important life-affecting decision is made for your child. There are times when the court may segregate out an issue and say, this parent is better equipped to make this decision and therefore I'm going to give this parent sole legal custody on, by way of illustration, whether or not the child receives this medication, whether or not the child receives what type of education. Why might that happen? Well. An illustration would be that one parent firmly believes that the child has a particular issue, situation, or condition, health condition, that requires a certain treatment. The other parent equally aggressively disagrees. And then the court, they both use their influence and put pressure on the other parent, and then they go to court, and the court says, well, thank you both for what you want. Unfortunately, you've put me in a horrible choice. The judge talking now, you know your child better than I ever will, and yet you want me, a stranger, to make the decision about how you're going to treat your child. Well, I disdain that responsibility. That's what I have to do. So I now decide that I'm going with dad's position of we're not going to do this. Okay? Then, if dad gets that ruling and mom acts in defiance of the court orders to try to block that, guess what? Mom is now likely to get cut out of legal custody in its entirety. And if that issue persists, guess what? Then they might be in affecting physical custody as well. Why? Well, because generally medical treatments, medication, and things like that have to be managed across both households. So if little Johnny's getting medication at, at dad's house, then goes to mom and she refuses to give him the medication, how's it going to help little Johnny? It ain't. So we get a situation where the court can literally take away all custody from a parent when they engage in that kind of behavior. 
that's both not only in, in disagreement with the other parent, but most importantly, it's basically thumbing their nose at the court and say, I'm not going to follow your court order. I don't care. That's the kind of thing that can get a parent in trouble in custody in a heartbeat is telling the judge that they're not going to follow their orders or show that they're not going to. So legal custody, that's the big picture stuff for legal custody is making the decision, how the decisions are enforced. Once you get into a court situation, the court will often make very specific orders that say things like, hey, you are required to follow the following procedure. You must communicate with the other parent before you do anything in these defined care categories, like non-emergency medical treatment, okay? Like, before you engage in, in therapy, you must have a written agreement with the other parent before you do that, which tells them they're not only forcing parents to talk and communicate and make decisions jointly, even though they're not together anymore, they're also requiring to get input from each other if you can't reach the agreement and you're still adamant about your position, then you go to court and you try to convince the judge why your methodology is better. And when you do that, you better have your ducks in a row. You better have the medical records to back it up. You better have uh, communications with the parents that you tried to communicate. And we're going to talk about that in a second. And you better uh, make sure that you've honored the court orders as far as what you were supposed to do before you brought it to court. It is very common for parties to include, for instance, a requirement that the parents, if they reach a disagreement, that they have to independently mediate an issue, and indeed there is court-ordered mediation that is a separate process, before they can go to court. And that sometimes can be very, very helpful to make sure everybody totally understands each other's positions. Well, I'm going to actually segue into the co-parenting issue uh, briefly before we get into physical custody, because it really is a crossroads between those two, and it really affects both legal custody and physical custody. Co-parenting is the act by which parents, as I said earlier, communicate with the other parent about what's going on with the child. From a technological perspective, there are several apps now available on your phone or mobile device, websites. That one's, One of the big ones is called Talking Parents. There's another one called Our Family Wizard, and there are a variety of other ones. And they are all very useful tools, uh, some more useful than others. Uh, what they do, number one, is they create a defined and in one place log for all of your parental communications. On some points it's like emails, some points it's like uh, texting, uh, but the beauty of it is not only does it keep an entire history of when and where everybody communicated, it also logs when you read it. So if the other parent sends you a message Monday at 6 o'clock and you don't read it till Friday, you're not being a good parent because you're not paying attention to the primary method of communication. Two, it is available for the court or attorneys to review it to see if somebody is using that platform for its intended purpose, which is to share information and seek feedback. What it is not designed to do, and hopefully your attorney will tell you don't do this, what it is, is not designed for is for you to posture your case. And so often we see this used for this purpose where a, a parent will send a message to the other parent saying, little Johnny came home with a bruise on his knee. What did you do to him? Okay. Which is obviously presupposing that somebody did something to little Johnny and he didn't simply fall. Okay. 
So when you see things like that, you know somebody is in a, in a place where they're having trouble of conducting their behavior solely focused on Johnny's best interest. They're thinking about their own issues, even though they're cloaking it out of concern for Johnny. So the proper way to respond to that is, I noticed little Johnny had a bruise today. Can you share with me what occurred? The other parent may say, you know what, I saw that too. I didn't see it. I probably should have mentioned it to you. I apologize. I have no idea how little Johnny got that. Okay? And that can happen, depending on how old little Johnny is and what little Johnny does. So you don't want to be accusatory. You don't want to trap somebody and, and, and into making admissions and things like that. That's really not what it's for. It is a very useful tool in custody lawyers' um, briefcases for conducting examinations and, and going to the other party and say, well, isn't it true that, that you took Johnny to the doctor and you never communicated that to mother? And I'm looking through the, the, the log here and it says, you didn't say anything about that. How come? In other words, you're acting by taking Johnny to the doctor and not posting in the log that, hey, I made an appointment for Johnny at three o'clock at Dr. Smith's office. Then guess what? You, you're not doing your job either. So these logs are very, very helpful. Some of the more sophisticated ones have additional nuances and touches, like if you're writing, it can tell you if your language is getting too aggressive and advise you and, and maybe help you tone it down a bit. There are some clients that we actually, we jokingly refer to this as taking away their writing privileges because um, they are so adversarial in their communications that they are absolutely destroying their own case. And sometimes we have to sit down with them and literally have them write their response and help have us help them craft it and learn to communicate in a less adversarial manner. Co-parenting. There's a, there's a uh, great, great book out there, and we've had some speakers on some of our webinars and things like that. And I believe that, I'm hopefully not going to butcher the name of the book, but it's, I think it's Our Happy Divorce. That's what it is. Our Happy Divorce. And it's a couple that went through a divorce, and it wasn't very pretty. And at the very, very end, they realized, you know what? We really got a great kid, and I want to make sure, we both want to make sure our kid has the best life our kid can have. And so let's stop this stuff and start focusing. And they did it. And to this day, I mean, they speak, they write, they've got this book. They, uh, and I remember talking to uh, the father, the biological father, and uh, he shared some really, really insightful thoughts that was so cool that his son became very, very close with his stepfather. In other words, his ex-wife's new husband. And the son shared with his biological father that he was looking forward to going fishing with his stepfather. And the true and honest and first reaction of the father was, wow, I'm jealous. I'm hurt that my kid is excited to be going with somebody else. But then the true parent came out and he realized what a joy that was to have somebody that his son cared so much about and was there for him at the same time that he was. That is the goal of, of, of blended families. It is a, the goal of co-parenting to each parent put the needs of the child ahead of their own, whether they know and see that they're doing it or not. And if you stop and think, you won't make any mistakes. Um, that's co-parenting onto physical custody. Timeshare. Timeshare is how we share a child and what we, how we share a child and whether it's a 50-50 arrangement or whether it's a uh, weekends only or whether it's a month in the summer. That depends on so many factors. I'll start with this. 
If two parents live across the street from each other in the same school district, they get along well, they both have reasonable work schedules, no extraneous factors, then those parents should be, should be sharing those children on a relatively equal basis. And that's how the court looks at it. However, take each piece out of the puzzle and look at it. What if one parent lives in New York? Is that going to work? Probably not. Not going to be putting his kid on a plane every other week and enrolling him in different schools. What if the parents don't get along? They despise each other. And father tells little Johnny, tell your mother she's a bitch. Okay? And mother says, you know, tell your father's new wife she's fat. Okay? It ain't going to work ever. That is the worst thing you can do to a child. And you may think I'm being overly dramatic. I'm not. Sometimes people get so focused on their animosity and their hurt that they lose sight of what is the most important thing for their children, which is that they be insulated and protected. What if one parent works 75 hours a week? Does that mean they can't have their kid? No, but it kind of does make a practical issue that if you're leaving at 3 in the morning that you don't have the ability to take little Johnny to school. I feel about calling our hypothetical kid little Johnny. Little Johnny's going to be traumatized by the time we get finished with this, this talk. But that's the reality. If you're on an airplane, you know, three weeks out of the month, can you really realistically take care of a child half of the time? And the answer is probably not. And it's a practical thing. And then the last factor we look at is, maybe not the last factor, but a significant factor, is uh, we look at uh, the age and developmental level of the child. Is this a newborn? Is this a one-year-old? Is it a two-year-old? Is it a six-year-old? Is it a 10-year-old? Is it a 13-year-old? Is it a 15-year-old, etc.? Those ages that I picked were not random. Those are all developmental benchmarks where most children will change, develop, and evolve. And progressively, from the time of the newborn to the 17 and a half year old, they become more and more and more autonomous. Individual thinking, acting people with their own wants and desires that they've thought about and contemplated. So what does a newborn want? Food, love, being held. What does a 17 and a half year old want? Money, Xbox, left alone. Somewhere in between there, we get to watch and enjoy our children growing up. But why is it important from a custody perspective? If a child is a newborn, how are you going to share that child in a healthy 50-50 way? Most psychologists and most developmental experts think that a child may need a primary parent or home for at least some of the time. Uh, the law defines, a California defines custody as frequent and continuous contact. Frequent and continuous contact. That can be interpreted so many ways, and it is. It can be every other day. It can be every other week. It can be three hours a day, six days a week. Isn't that frequent? Isn't it continuous? The short answer is yes. 
and the totality of the circumstances is what guides the judge in making that decision. If the judge is forced to make the decision and the parents can't reach a custodial agreement on their own. So two-year-old, they're becoming more and more autonomous, a little more able to spend more time away from a quote unquote primary parent, more time away from a known home or bed. Some parents are very adamant that this child needs one bed that they sleep in every night. Some judges may subscribe to that theory. Others don't. A bed is a piece of furniture and it's more important, They, those judges say, that the child have more frequent and continuous contact with both parents, regardless of what furniture they're sleeping in. Lots of different thoughts, but what we all agree on generally is that the older a child gets, the more the ability to share a child comes into play. I'm sure you would all agree that, let's say, a two-year-old could more easily be shared every other day than could a 17-year-old. I think a 17-year-old might rebel pretty quickly on that one. What about what we call a 2-5 or a 2-3-2? And this is becoming a very, very common sharing arrangement for children that are between, on the lower end, perhaps two years old, maybe a little older, and on the higher end, maybe up to, say, 12, maybe 13 might be pushing it. And that's where you're sharing the children um, twice during a week. So, for instance, mother might have every single Monday, Tuesday. Dad might have every single Wednesday, Thursday. Then they alternate Friday through Sunday. Very, very common. Very. Why? Because a child is not away from the other parent for more than five days at a time. And there's a guaranteed time with each parent for at least two days. So that's the way it works, basically. It's two on, two off, five on, two off. So that's how it works. And it's very, very, very well accepted. Why doesn't it work for the younger children? Well, as we talked about, it can work, but now you're moving a very small child, a very underdeveloped child, back and forth very, very frequently, uh, and that just creates issues, developmental issues that may give the child pause or cause stress in the child's life, which is what we're trying to avoid. Again, every one of these, every one of these decisions, have you heard me say, what is the parent's right? And the answer is no, and I'm going to come back to that. This is all about what's best for the child. And by the way, if you're in a custody battle, I'm telling you, if you talk about me and mine, you're going nowhere. If you're talking about, I really believe this is what's best for our child, and you can demonstrate that, you're way ahead of the game. So as a litigant, as a co-parent, it's critical that you understand the focus of what the court is the best interest of the child. It is not unusual, though it is less common nowadays, that I get a potential client that comes into the office and pounds their fist on the table and says, I want my 50%. Okay, and I didn't make that sound like a man's voice, did I? Sorry. Um, the reality is, I look them in the eye and go, which half would you like? And basically, it's the words of Solomon, and that's exactly what happened. If you remember the biblical story of Solomon and uh, the woman came and said, that's my child. The other woman says, no, it's my child. So the judge says, fine, the judge, Solomon. I'm just going to cut the child in half. Which half would you like? And of course, the true mother said, no, give her the child. Because that mother understood what was important. That's what the judges aspire to, is to have that kind of wisdom. Some do very well at it. Some struggle mightily. 
But every parent needs to understand that you got to do what's best for the child. The parent that leaves their house for work at 3 a.m. and demands that they have the child sleep overnight at their house every single night without making some kind of arrangement for how to get the child up, fed, ready for school, picked up from school, etc. Now, Ken, sometimes you solve that with a new spouse and a new stepfather or stepmother in the house. Yes, you can, and I applaud that. Those couples that I told you about with my, my happy or our happy divorce, that's exactly what they did. They said, hey, I value the fact that there's a new parent that cares about my child in a way that makes me feel that the child is well taken care of. That's a great thing. All right, I just remembered the names of the authors of that great book. I love Our Happy Divorce. And by the way, we give it out to a lot of our clients. It was written by Benjamin Heldfon and Nikki DeBartolo. Those are the two co-parents uh, that, that both wrote the book and are working cooperatively to this day to raise a happy, healthy uh, child. So um, a shout out to them for, for contributing to the discussion. So important. Other issues in custody visitation. So what happens if a parent wants to relocate when she used to live here, she used to live across the street from the other parent. We call that a move away. Move away is a whole another area of law within the, the bulwark of custody and visitation. And it's a very valuable area because those are the kind of cases that usually get a lot of attention from the appellate courts because the stakes are so high. And a move away is a, a whole different discussion and we'll be covering that in a separate episode. But suffice to say that very illustrative of the concept of co-parenting and what happens when it doesn't work is the most important recent case in a move away case called La Mouche. And La Mouche, uh, a case that was decided in Orange County, California, is a case where the court ultimately reached a rather unique decision, but clearly the right one based upon their analysis. If a parent is so opposed to the children's relationship with the other parent, then guess what? That parent will not be allowed to relocate and take the children away when their primary goal is to frustrate the children's relationship with the other parent. That's an important point because that is known, number one, that that's a prerequisite to being allowed to move is that you have the ability to share the children. That is equally important in every shared arrangement. What happens when little Johnny forgets his tennis shoes or his soccer cleats at one parent's house? What happens if little Johnny forgets his math book? What happens if, etc., etc.? If two parents cannot work together to make sure that they handle that and they rush the backpack to the other parent happily because it's for Johnny, not for the other parent, okay? And they run Johnny's math book. Or you know what? They get smart. They get two sets of cleats. <laughs> And two sets of math book. I guarantee you little Johnny's going to leave them both somewhere. But that's what's going to happen. they got to be able to work together on the fly as, they, as if they were, and in fact they are, still both parents to that child. What about the circumstances where the parents do live relatively far apart? They don't live across the street. Well, now we've got to craft a sharing arrangement that is, again, focused on the best interest of the child while concurrently reaching the state-mandated and societally-mandated uh, goal of frequent and continuous contact. How do we do both when the parents live far apart? How far? That's the question. If they live 100 miles apart, is it reasonable to share the child every couple of days? Maybe not, especially if little Johnny gets carsick. 
okay? Especially if there's horrible traffic patterns. They're on the, the 91 freeway or the 405 freeway or pick your favorite horrible freeway. What time are the exchanges? Are they Friday nights during rush hour or Saturday mornings? In other words, you, you tweak it, you accommodate, you do what you can. What if one child lives 250 miles away? Well, it's that much harder and probably definitely not gonna be able to share it with that kind of regularity or frequency. It is far more likely that you're gonna do something where a person may have a, a weekend schedule and maybe they get the majority of the weekends, if not all of the weekends. Maybe we add every Monday holiday. Maybe we do a lot of creative things to try to make it work for the child to be able to spend quality time with both parents. Once again, we still have to look at work schedules and other issues. What if we have to fly the child somewhere? The child lives so far that driving just won't work even on a weekly basis. Now we gotta talk about airports, cost of airfares, and the child, is the child old enough to fly alone? Um, well, the choice of a major airport versus a minor. Maybe a smaller airport is closer to the home of a parent and therefore reduces drive time before or after landing. But maybe it's a problem with finding a direct flight from the smaller airport. And so those kinds of complications have to be worked out between parents. How we're going to allocate the cost of the tickets. Who buys which ticket? Often it's the receiving parent buys the ticket. Why? Because that allows them to dictate the time the child is going to arrive within the court-ordered schedule. But again, in the end, it works if both parents want it to work. So we've talked about sharing arrangements. We've talked about other circumstances. Uh, we've talked about blended parenting and, and, uh, and co-parenting. Well, actually, we didn't talk about blended. Let me touch on that. Blended parenting is our happy divorce. It is involving the step-parents in the relationship, however, pause, not necessarily the parenting. Meaning, there's only one mom and dad, and while those other people are important in the child's life, the two people that got to make the hard decisions are mom and dad. And that's what the court wants to see as well. Well, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I want to thank you for investing your time in this episode, and I hope you found this information helpful. If you'd like more information, you can download the ebook, Divorce 101. It's free on our website, divorceauthority.com. You can also follow me on social media at Divorce Authority. I'm Dane Holstrom, and when I do becomes I don't. Turn to Divorce Authority.